Well, good morning. Yeah, when they uh, scheduled me to come teach this class in January, I was a little concerned it might be a little cold being in Milwaukee in January. I'm glad that my fears were unfounded. <laughs> so it's not too cold. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Psalm 60. And I'm going to look at it on uh, the Bible app on my phone. be honest, I don't usually use this Bible app uh, very often. I usually use a physical Bible. But if it's all right, I thought I'd come across as hip and relevant, so I'm using <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so, Psalm 60. You know, uh, without a doubt, David is the greatest warrior in all the scriptures. As a teenager, yeah, he kills Goliath and he rallies the troops to, to uh, defeat the Philistines. And then subsequently, as, as King Saul's general, he leads the troop into many more successful battles against the Philistines. And soon we find the Israelites singing that Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Later, he unifies the nation, he consolidates his power, and he finally conquers essentially all of the promised land. And then he turns his attention to outward expansion, you know, to, to subjugating the surrounding nations and making them tributary to him. Now, in this, in this regard, we know that later in his life, David experienced some personal and moral failings. But on the battlefield, on the battlefield, we don't expect to see David fail. And yet, surprisingly, this is not the case. Even David, the great warrior, loses a battle. Even David experiences a setback. And the question is, why did God allow David to suffer this loss? And more importantly, how did David respond when God allowed this? Was he confused? Was he, was he discouraged? Was he angry at God? Why did you let this happen kind of, kind of thing? Well, you know, we don't really have to guess because it was on this occasion that David composed Psalm 60. This is a psalm that gives us insight into his thoughts and feelings on this occasion. It's a somewhat short and simple psalm. There's no complex theology here. And yet it's a very practical one because like David, we will all experience setbacks in life. David's purpose in this psalm is to teach us how we can and should respond at such times. Now, as the subtitle to this psalm explains, the backdrop to this psalm is an occasion when David had launched an attack in the land of Edom, but there he suffered a devastating and embarrassing loss in battle. And note how David describes this uh, loss in a threefold way in the first verse of the psalm. He says in Psalm 61, O God, thou hast cast us off, thou hast scattered us, thou hast been displeased. O turn thyself to us again. First, David says God had cast them off. This means literally that he had abandoned them. He had left them to fight the battle without his divine help and aid. It's the type of a, of a phenomenon we find expressed in Psalm 44, 9, where the psalmist says, Thou hast cast us off and put us to shame, and goest not forth with our armies. And so David has been abandoned by God. The second thing he says in this verse is that God had scattered them. This means literally that he'd broken down their defenses. He had left them defenseless. In other words, God does not merely abandon them and then leave them to themselves to fight the battle without his help. Rather, he 
actively works against them by breaking down their defenses, leaving them defenseless before the enemy. And hence, they don't have a chance. The third thing that David says in this verse is that God is displeased. He says, thou hast been displeased. Now, David doesn't elaborate here on why he felt that God had been displeased. Was there perhaps some sin in the camp or some sin in David's life? We simply don't know. But whatever their cause, there can be no doubt that this was a serious setback. And the setback was not merely for David and just the men in his military. It represented a setback for the entire nation. Notice what he goes on to say in verses 2 through 3. Verses 2 through 3, Thou hast made the earth to tremble. Thou hast broken it. Heal the breaches thereof, for it shaketh. Thou hast shown thy people hard things. Thou hast made us to drink the wine of astonishment. And so in verse uh, 2 there, he says, you've made the earth to tremble. The term here translated as earth could also be translated as land. And I think that's probably what he's talking about. He doesn't mean the whole globe, the whole planet is shaken, but the land of Israel. But he says in the following verse, you have shown your people, the covenant people, the Jewish people, hard things. It is our land that is suffering because of this setback. Now, in light of such a devastating blow that was not merely permitted by God, but we could say actually caused by God, was there any hope of success then in this venture against the Edomites? Or should David simply abandon the task altogether and move on to other endeavors, just cut his losses and go on? Was there hope he could yet succeed? Yes, there was hope. Notice as we continue in verses 4 through 5 what he says. Verse 4 through 5, he says, Thou hast given a banner to them that fear thee, that it may be displayed because of the truth, that thy beloved may be delivered. Save with thy right hand and hear me. In this verse, David really references twofold basis for hope. Two reasons that David had hope. You'll see that he references the possibility of being delivered in verse 5 and of being saved. He yet prays that God will do so because he believes that there is this hope of salvation and deliverance. But what is this twofold basis for his hope? Well, first of all, there is this banner that he referenced in verse 4. He says, Thou hast given a banner to them that fear thee. There is a banner. Now, the term here translated as banner would refer to a standard, and an ensign. It's a, that flag waving high upon the pole used to inspire and to rally the troops. And in the latter part of verse 4, he says they need this banner, they need this rallying point because of the truth. Now, there is an ambiguity here in the Hebrew. That expression, because of the truth, could also be translated as because of the weapons, the bows and arrows, of the enemy. And contextually, I lean toward that translation. The idea being here that the enemy is attacking, their defenses have given away, and so the army has been scattered in a hasty and, and unorganized retreat. I mean, everyone's just running his own way. And David's left saying to his men, wait, wait, come back. And so uh, they need to rally because the enemy has attacked them. But David says, not only do we need a rallying point, we have it. We have this banner. Now, the banner, of course, is not a literal banner that David's talking about. He is talking about a metaphorical banner, a metaphorical standard. What is it? 
Well, Moses knew what it was. Look back with me, if you would, for a moment to Exodus. The book of Exodus, chapter 17. Exodus, chapter 17, in verse 8. We find an account of an experience with the Jews when they were in the wilderness with Moses. Exodus, chapter 7, verse 8 and following. Verse 8 and following. We're told, Then came Amalek and fought with Israel and Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men, and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him, and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. And they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. All right, so we've got this account here where the, the Amalekites attacked them. And Moses says, well, I'll go up here on top of this hill, take this rod of God in my hand, and I will hold it up. And what's he doing when he's holding up that rod? It is functioning like a standard. The troops rally around this standard. And so it is. When the rod is held high, the people rally and they win the day and there's victory. But when Moses' arms grow tired and he begins to drop the standard, they begin to lose the battle. And so he must hold the standard high. And that's why he gets some help in holding it up. But of course, once again, we know that the, the secret to victory wasn't actually in the rod, right? This rod was but a picture, it was but an object lesson, it was but a metaphor. What was the real banner around which the people would rally? Well, notice what he continues to tell us here in Exodus 17, verses 14 through 15. Verse 14 through 15, And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi. So we find here that in, we're told in verse 14 that God is the one who ultimately will defeat the Amalekites. He is the one who is responsible for doing away with this enemy. And hence, uh, in response to this grand and glorious truth, Moses builds this altar and he names it Jehovah Nissi. Jehovah Nissi, which literally means Jehovah is my banner. So who is the real banner? What is the real rallying point? It is none other than Jehovah God himself. Moses knew God is the source of victory. It is God who would defeat the Amalekites. God is our rallying cry and our rallying point in life. But the scriptures, they don't leave it there. In the unfolding and progressive revelation of God to us in the Bible, we find yet a, a later uh, author adding to our understanding, a, a greater degree of specificity in identifying this banner. So let me turn your attention now to the writings of the prophet Isaiah. Look with me, if you would, for a moment at Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 is one of these great uh, passages that uh, describes the Messiah and his coming kingdom someday. We're introduced to the Messiah right off the bat in the first verse. He says here in verse 1, There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. When he talks about this 
this rod, this stem from Jesse. He is, of course, talking about the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who's a descendant of David. And if you'd read the following verses, he goes on to describe his kingdom. This is the time when he'll be ruling on the earth, and some of the effects of the curse will be reversed. We will find the lion and the, the, lion and the lamb lying down together, and the wolf and the lamb, and so forth. And, and so this is the kingdom of the Lord. And then in this context, by the time you get down to verse 10, notice what he says. He again comes back to the Messiah, this, this descendant of Jesse. And in verse 10 he says, In that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people, to it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. So again, you see, he references the Messiah, this root of Jesse. But you notice that in this case, he says this descendant of Jesse, who is none other than Jesus Christ, right, will stand for an ensign to the people. Notice that word ensign? That is the same word in Psalm 60 translated as banner. See, uh, So who is ultimately the banner? It is none other than the Messiah, none other than Jesus Christ. He is the banner. And he says the Gentiles will look in faith to him. The Gentiles will put their faith to him. They will rally to him. And it's not just the Gentiles. If you look at the following verses, verses 11 through 12, notice what he goes on to say, verses 11 through 12. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt, from Pathras and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcast of Israel and shall gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And so not only the Gentiles, but the Jewish people, they also will rally around this ensign, this banner, which is represented by the person of Jesus Christ himself. Later in Isaiah 62, Isaiah will make the same point. Look at Isaiah 62, verses 10 through 12. Again, he puts this in the context of, of the Jewish people and what is in their future. Isaiah 62, verses 10 through 12. Isaiah 62, verses 10 through 12. The Messiah comes, and, but when he comes, he comes in his capacity as a Savior. And so notice how he describes this in Isaiah 62, 10 through 12. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare ye the way of the people. Cast up, cast up the highway, gather out the stones, lift up a standard for the people. Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world. Say ye to the daughter of Zion, behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And thou shalt be called sought out, a city not forsaken. And so once again, the Messiah is going to come. And you see that in this context, in verse 10, there is the standard lifted up for the people. And the standard is the Messiah who comes, and he comes bringing salvation. Verse 11 says, thy salvation cometh. And so the Jews are referred to in verse 12 as the redeemed of the Lord. And so not simply Jehovah, but Jehovah incarnated. Jehovah in the person Jesus of Nazareth, Jehovah as a descendant of King David. That is the banner. But there's still a little bit more we need to know about this banner. So let me turn your attention back to the writings of Moses for one further observation to fill in some details about this banner that, that David knew was the basis of hope. Numbers chapter 21, verses 5 through 7. Again, we encounter uh, an experience with the Jewish people out in the wilderness with Moses. 
And in Numbers 21, verses 5 through 7, Numbers 21, verses 5 through 7, we're told this. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no bread, neither there's any water. And I so loathe this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much of the people of Israel died. And therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. So the people are sinning, they're griping, they're complaining, they're not trusting in the Lord. So these serpents come and they're biting the people, and these are deadly serpents that many people are literally dying, they are perishing. So they ask Moses to pray, and Moses prays, what do we do? And the Lord gives them an answer, and what is the response of the Lord? Notice verses 8 through 9. Verses 8 through 9, the narrative continues, and we're told that the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. So God says, all right, I want you to, to make us this bronze serpent, and set him upon the pole, and lift it up high. And you'll observe that word, pole. You might know already where I'm going with this. That word here translated as pole is that same word that elsewhere in the Bible is translated as a standard, an ensign, or a banner. Usually, there would be a flag waving upon such a pole, but this time, instead of a flag waving there, it was a serpent. And when the people would look in faith to that standard of the serpent, they would be healed instead of perishing. And against this backdrop, then, that we can appreciate the words of Jesus to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, when he said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so also must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so you see, more specifically, not only does the banner represent the person of Christ, God incarnate, it also represents his sacrificial death upon the cross. The banner is both Christ and his atoning death. The banner is both the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is the banner. And thus David had hope. God may well have been displeased with David and the people, but what David knew is that there is a Savior, that God had a plan, he had a banner, a Savior whose atoning work could appease the wrath of God and reconcile his people to him and thus bring his blessing. And so as far as David was concerned, God had not fully, finally, and ultimately abandoned his people. In fact, turn your attention then back to Psalm 60. Turn your attention back to Psalm 60. Let us revisit verse 5. I want you to notice again, the, the wording of David in Psalm chapter 60 and verse 5 here. He says in the first part of the verse, his, his prayer, his request is that thy beloved may be delivered. Note the expression beloved. God still loved him. David never questioned that. God still loved him. And in this context where David speaks of a banner and his status as one who is beloved of God. One cannot help but think of the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 4. 
For we know that God designed that the marriage relationship, of course, is a, is a wonderful picture, an object lesson that illustrates our relationship to God. And so in the Song of Solomon, it does not surprise us that we find Solomon's uh, bride uttering these words in Song of Solomon 2.4, that his banner over me is love. For God is love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so, David saw this setback as nothing more than a temporary setback. This did not represent ultimate failure, not ultimate rejection and abandonment from God, just a temporary setback. And so he still has hope. He has hope not only because there is a banner, but there's a second reason for hope in this passage, and that is the promises of God. For turning attention again to Psalm 60 as he continues, notice what he says in the first part of verse 6. In verse 6 he says, God hath spoken in his holiness. David had hope because he knew that God had spoken and he knew what God had said. Now he says here that God had spoken in his holiness. Now, holiness refers to the concept that God is separate and above all other things. He is transcendent above all things. He is eternal and infinite. He is not limited in any way by the weakness, the finiteness, or the sin that we are limited by. In every way, He is infinite. So far does He transcend and so far above and separate from all created things, is He. And thus, for example... Part of his holiness involves the fact that he is infinite in his knowledge. Nothing unexpected ever happens to God. God never has a plan B. He doesn't need a plan B, right? Because he knows exactly what's going to happen. He doesn't have to prepare for you know, unforeseen circumstances. God is infinite in his power. Nothing can stop him from fulfilling his promises. God is infinite in his goodness. He promises only good things. And so David says, God has spoken in his holiness, meaning God has spoken from his vantage point as one who is infinite in knowledge and power and goodness. And the question is, what did he say? What had God promised in his holiness? Well, notice again the wording of verses 6 through 8. We'll get the promise here. Verses 6 through 8. He says, God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and meet out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the strength of my head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom will I cast out my shoe. And Philistia, triumph thou because of me. Now, what is God really saying here? Well, you'll observe that he basically is referring to key locations, key geographic locations that once belonged to the Canaanites. Shechem on the west side of the Jordan River, Sukkot and Gilead on the eastern side of the river. All these territories God had now given to the Jews. In verse 7, he references three key tribal allotments. Manasseh, a key tribe in the northern part of the country. Ephraim, a key tribe in the central part of the country. And Judah, the definitive tribe in the south, and the royal tribe from whence David hails. All those tribal allotments had been given to the nation by God. In verse 8, he turns his attention to foreign nations beyond the borders of the country. Moab and Edom to the east. The land of the Philistines to the west. 
All these God had promised to subjugate to the Jewish people. This is what God had promised. And David knew that promise. Well, this is an attack on Edom, one of those countries, one of those nations. A nation that should fall under the control of God's people. So David knows the promise of God. He knows this is the destiny of his people. So based upon the promises of God, David has hope. And so then in light of this hope, knowing there is a banner, knowing the promises of God, how does David respond? Oh, I, I love his response. Notice verse 9. Verse 9. Who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me into Edom? You know what David's basically doing here? Yeah, I know I fell off that horse, but he gets right back up and gets right back on that horse again. Just gets up, wipes off the dust and says, okay, we go back at it again. We're going to attack Edom again. Who's going with me? Who's going with me to attack Edom? Now, of course, he hopes that his soldiers are still with him, that they haven't given up, that indeed he can rally the military. But when David says, who's going with me? He's looking for someone else to join him in this battle. Not, not, the, not the, the men in his army. Who is it? Notice what he says in verses 10 through 12. Verses 10 through 12. Wilt not thou, O God, which hadst cast us off? And thou, O God, which didst not go out with thy armies? Give us help from trouble, for vain is the help of man. Through God we shall do valiantly, for he it is that shall tread down our enemies. See, the one that David ultimately wanted to accompany him in battle was, was God himself. David was inviting God, believed that God would go with him, believed that God would give him the victory. He says in verse 12, through God we will do valiantly. We will tread down the enemies. We will conquer the Edomites. Was he right? Was he right in this hope? Or was he just dreaming? Well, yes, he was right. The record of this event in the historical books tells us that this time when David went forth to conquer the Edomites, he whooped them. He whooped them good. That's a southern expression for it was a great military victory. So he enjoyed this tremendous military success. The land of Edom became subject to David and began to pay tribute to him. And so in conclusion, as we summarize really David's message to us in this simple psalm, what is it that David wants us to learn from this experience? Bottom line is this. Look, we all experience setbacks in life. Sometimes it might be because of sin in our lives. God has to step in and interrupt our plans through an act of discipline or perhaps to try to get our attention about this matter. But at such times, we have hope. We have hope because Christ is our banner to whom we can look in faith. And we have promises in Scripture, the promises that God has spoken to us in His holiness. Promises like 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah, right? So if God steps in and gives you a temporary setback, that's all right. That doesn't mean that's the end of the matter. We can set matters right with God and then go forward from there. Sometimes, it might not be because of sin proper. Perhaps we're just approaching a matter in, in a foolish way. We're not really using 
sound judgment, common sense. We act in a foolish way. And at such times, sometimes God may simply step back, set back and let us suffer the consequences of our own foolishness. Because God's basic approach is, well, you know, I, I, I'm not going to bless your foolishness. I, I don't bless foolishness. I'm, I'm not going to work with that. I, I sometimes say, look, God doesn't bless my stupidity, and I'm not going to bless your stupidity either. <laughs> what we learn from the book of Proverbs is that God chooses to work through the medium of wisdom, sound judgment, and common sense. So if you're going to exercise common sense, God will bless that and he'll work through that. But if you just want to be foolish, God's not going to bless that. So sometimes he just says, I'm not going to be a part of that if that's how you're going to approach it. But then when we tried our way, the foolish way, we kind of say, well, I see that didn't work so well. Well, then, then we can go at it again, this time, maybe seeking some wise guidance and counsel, maybe from somebody wiser or who's had more life experience or from a, you know, from a pastor or someone like that. And then we can go forward with God's blessing, knowing the promises to us in the book of Proverbs that God has chosen to bless his people through the medium of wisdom. Or sometimes, sometimes we might not have done anything wrong at all. Perhaps for reasons known only to God, he has chosen to step in and, and delay our progress. Perhaps he desires maybe that we take a detour as we progress toward a certain goal. <clears throat> Consider the example of uh, my wife, for example. She, she graduated uh, early from high school. She was 16 when she graduated and went off to college. She had been saved a, a couple years, and she didn't, have, um, uh, she didn't come from a saved family background. She didn't have any support, but she believed God wanted to go to this Christian college. So she worked that summer and saved up just enough money to buy an airplane ticket and had $200 left over. So she ended up on, uh, on the college campus with $200 to her name. But I believe God's going to get me through what God orders he'll, he'll pay for. So she slugged it out, you know, through her first year getting through. But after the end of one year, you know, she was starting to accumulate a little debt. She said, you know, I, I can't keep going like this. Um, I, I, I can't come back. I'm going to have to go work. And so... Um, she you know, stayed out and ended up having to work full-time for a year and a half and pay off some debt and get herself in a better financial footing. Now, at that point, she could have gotten frustrated with God. Why are you doing this? I trusted you. I stepped out on faith. I thought you called me to go to this college here. I'm supposed to be working toward a degree. Instead, I'm just sitting out here just working a job. I'm not making progress toward this degree. I only got one year of college under my belt. So during what seemed like a very long year and a half while she was out working, she could have gotten frustrated. She could have gotten angry with God, not knowing why he allowed this to happen. But in retrospect, you look back and you think, well, I maybe know at least maybe part of the reason he allowed that to happen. Because my wife and I are the same age, but because she ended up at college so early, she was ahead of me. So I showed up a, a, a year later. And after staying out for a year and a half, she came back to, to campus. That was my sophomore year, and she would have picked up then as, as being a a sophomore at that point. Well, that put us in sync. We were both the same year. Had that not happened, we probably never would have met because uh, you know, otherwise our paths would have never crossed, but we were taking a few common freshman and sophomore core classes. We both ended up in the same literature class, and as they say, the rest is history. After several years, uh, we ended up getting married. Uh, several years, by the way, you talk about God slowing things down. That, that was a long process, too, before we actually got married. But that's another story. But you see, you know, she had to stay out for a year and a half. Did, did God really want her to get that degree? Yeah. Did he see her through? Yeah. 
that wasn't a permanent setback. It was temporary. It was temporary. You know, in the context of ministry and spiritual work, sometimes we may feel like we're not seeing as much success as we'd like. We'd like to think, well, God, why, why aren't more people getting saved? Why am I not seeing more response? But, but we can always go forward in hope, knowing that our ministry and involvement in the Lord's kingdom is but a small part of a much bigger picture where you're one piece of a, of a puzzle. But if you're involved in that endeavor, if you're serving the Lord, you're out there in the harvest field, we go forward in the knowledge that Jesus promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And if you're ministering, if you're laboring, if you're serving out there, you serve knowing you are a part of the fulfillment of that promise. I will build my church. You're a part of that. And so look, the bottom line is this. We, we all experience setbacks in life, but those setbacks do not have to be the final word. Setbacks do not have to define the ultimate outcome. In many cases, many cases, you'll find that setbacks are but temporary delays on the road to ultimate success and great victory. So if you're dealing with some kind of setback in your life right now, I hope you'll take David's words to heart. And if you're not dealing with any kind of setback right now, I hope you'll store up David's words in your heart and mind because someday you will experience a setback and you'll need to be able to draw from these encouraging words in the scriptures. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had to hear this 